Today's hearing will focus on an important part of the Middle East, one that probably does not receive enough attention from policymakers, and that is Yemen. Yemen is, if, if we could, I tell you what, if people that are leaving, if you would leave quietly and promptly, that'd be great. Yemen has been rocked by political turmoil since 2011 and suffered through violent civil war since 2014. Unfortunately, the war has split the country in half and left much of Yemen ungoverned. Al-Qaeda's affiliate in the region, AQAP, has used this opportunity to flourish in Yemen. The group holds significant territory and has, has a long history of planning terrorist attacks against the United States. AQAP has several times tried to take down U.S.-bound airliners and has taken credit for other large attacks. AQAP is also a significant terrorist threat to Saudi Arabia and our Gulf allies. Additionally, Iran has exploited this conflict to increase its influence in the region. They continue to provide arms to the Houthi forces despite a UN Security Council resolution prohibiting such actions. Houthis have used these weapons to attack U.S. ships off the Yemeni coast, and they are launching missiles across the border into Saudi Arabia. Unfortunately, these concerns are compounded by a tragic humanitarian crisis that is currently unfolding. An estimated 7.3 million people are in need of immediate food aid. 462,000 children suffer from acute malnutrition. And according to the UN, more than 10,000 civilians have already died in a two-year conflict. Both the Saudi-led coalition and the Houthis disagree on the fundamentals of a political settlement. However, the battle lines are beginning to harden near where Yemen has previously divided from 1918 until 1990. With the arrival of a new administration and the new reality that is emerging on the ground, it's a good time to re-examine this conflict. We must ask what more can be done to bring about a peaceful resolution and take a closer look at what possible outcomes could mean for U.S. interest in the region. I also look forward to hearing your thoughts on the ways that the U.S. could further mitigate the humanitarian crisis and combat the AQAP threat. I want to thank all of you for being here today and for coming, and thank you for sitting through our business hearing. And with that, I want to thank again, I want, I want to thank again the committee and, uh, and uh, turn to our ranking member. Oh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I very much appreciate this hearing. I think it's very timely and important considering what is happening today in Yemen. And as we pointed out in previous hearings, there is no real uh, key leadership posts in the State Department are vacant that would be responsible for this portfolio. So we don't have a confirmed uh, person who could testify today, and I think that's unfortunate. And I would just encourage the Trump administration to get their team in place as quickly as possible, and I can assure the chairman that uh, we will work as quickly as possible to make sure that, that we consider those nominations uh, in order for the team to Thank be you. in place. That'd be great. Thank you. Uh, the Yemen conflict is one that has profound, serious implications for U.S. national security. The chairman's already mentioned our counterterrorism challenges from the Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, AQPA, to ISIS. It's contesting Iran and Iran's influence in Yemen. Our relationship with Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates and other Gulf countries, those of us who have visited those countries know that Yemen will be the number one issue on their agenda. 
Our insistence on international humanitarian and human rights laws desperately needed in Yemen today. Our commitment to assisting the world's most vulnerable population. Before the Civil War, it was one of the poorest nations in the world. And today, it's even in more dire condition. But instead of a deliberate national security decision-making process that identifies U.S. interests, objectives, and policy for Yemen, and then implements an appropriately resourced strategy, the Trump administration is stumbling into a series of escalations. A counterterrorism raid using U.S. ground forces during which we lost one Navy SEAL and many civilians for intelligence of questionable utility. A significant uptake in counterterrorism airstrikes over the past month. And the possibility of an increased but as yet unspecified support to the Saudi-led coalitions such as the President's apparent support for safe zones in Yemen. The current approach appears to lack nuance or reflection on the consequences of actions before taking them. It may be, if some reports are accurate, that the administration considers Yemen low-hanging fruit to push back on Iran with relatively little cost. But we've seen time and again that unexamined assumptions have consequences, especially when thrown into civil wars in the Middle East, situations in which terrorist groups prosper. Yemen is in the middle of an active civil war. We are supporting the Saudi Arabia and its coalition in seeking to reinstate the legitimate government of Yemen, and we want to move forward with a negotiated settlement. But all groups appear dug in, and the conflict is only escalating, as the UN panel of experts of Yemen stated in its final report to the Security Council last week. Mr. Chairman, I'm going to quote uh, a, a couple parts from that report because I think it's extremely relevant to today's hearing. The panel concluded, after nearly two years of conflict in Yemen, an outright military victory by one side is no longer a realistic possibility in the near term. To date, the parties have not demonstrated sustained interest in or commitment to a political settlement or peace talks. The report goes on to say, the air campaign waged by the coalition by the Saudi Arabia while devastating the Yemenite infrastructure and civilians have failed to dent the political will of the Houthi alliance to continue the conflict. Maritime attacks in the Red Sea in late 2016 have increased the risk of conflict spreading regionally. Before it continues, terrorist groups such as AQAP and ISIS affiliate in Yemen are now actively exploiting the changing political environment and governance vacuums to recruit new members and stage new attacks and are laying the foundation for terrorist networks that may last for years. The UN panel of experts concluded that the conflict has seen widespread violations of international humanitarian law by all parties, all parties to the conflict, widespread and systematic violations of international human rights laws and human rights norms, and that all parties have obstructed the distribution of humanitarian assistance within Yemen. So look at the numbers. 7.3 million people in need of immediate food aid, according to the World Food Program. 462,000 children suffering from severe acute malnutrition, according to UNICEF. Since March 2015, 20,000 children have died from preventable diseases, such as diarrhea and pneumonia. 14.8 million people lack access to basic health care, according to the World Health Organization. The United Nations estimates 7,500 people have died and 40,000 have been injured since March 2015. Iran is asserting itself in Yemen and transferring weapons and skills to the Houthis that could threaten freedom of navigation in the Red Sea coast for both military and commercial vessels. This is totally unacceptable. 
There is no question that the Saudis have legitimate defense concerns. A weak, divided Yemen, susceptible of Iranian influence or violent extremist groups like the AK, AQAP, is horrible for the Saudis. We understand that. The Houthis have launched guns, missiles, launched into the Saudi Arabia. The Saudi government has suffered casualties and have had to evacuate towns, schools, and hospitals. We should support our partner, the Saudis, and demand improvement in the conduct in the way that they do business. Bottom line, we need a comprehensive policy-driven vision for resolving the conflict in Yemen that articulates a realistic political outcome for the civil war and how we can get there, and also addresses counterterrorism and Iran. This is President's responsibility, along with his National Security Cabinet Secretaries and National Security Council, in conjunction with this committee and the Congress. I look forward to hearing from our witnesses. Thank you very much. Our first witness is Mr. Thomas Jocelyn, a senior fellow from the Foundation of Defense of Democracies. Our second witness is Dr. Daphna Ran from the National Defense University. Dr. Rand has previously served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary at the State Department's Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor. Our third witness is the Honorable Gerald Firestein from the Middle East Institute, Ambassador Firestein. Is it Firestein or Firestein? Firestein, thank you. Uh, was the U.S. Ambassador to Yemen from 2010 to 2013. Thank you for joining us. If you would just give your testimony in the order introduced, um, without objection, your written testimony will be entered into the record. If you could summarize in about five minutes, we would appreciate it. Thank you. Well, Senator Corker and other members of the committee, thank you for inviting me here today to testify about Yemen. Uh, I agree with some of the comments that Yemen doesn't get enough attention and is not really well understood publicly. Uh, it's something we've been tracking for years at uh, the Long War Journal very carefully. I'm basically a counterterrorism nerd, so I track uh, individual leaderships and groups very carefully. That's what we do. And we're very concerned that what's going on inside Yemen today, uh, well, first of all, we know it's going to keep going. I don't think there's any uh, resolution on the near horizon whatsoever. The Houthi advances beginning in late 2014 and early 2015 knocked out uh, a valuable counterterrorism partner for the U.S. in President Hadi's government. Uh, this jeopardized a lot of what the U.S. policy was in Yemen and under, undermined sort of our sort of security posture there. Um, there's no doubt in my mind that the Houthi uh, insurgency is fueled by Iran and Iranian weapons. There are plenty of open source reports to that effect. Um, some have said that uh, the Houthis are not the equivalent of Hezbollah or an Iranian proxy. That's correct. I don't think, I don't treat them as, a, as necessarily an Iranian proxy, but they are closely allied with Iran in the war, so I don't really care if they're a proxy or not. Uh, the bottom line is that's something that requires a lot of careful uh, study, though, however, to understand sort of the dynamics within the Houthis and sort of how that all works. Um, focusing on ACAP, the rest of my comments will focus on Al-Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula, um, because this is probably the, the, the part of the story, I think, that is most poorly understood. Um, you know, we've seen with the rise of ISIS uh, beginning in 2014, this understanding that ISIS declared this caliphate across much of Iraq and Syria and then these so-called provinces elsewhere. And one of the common memes that was repeated was that ISIS was uh, concerned with controlling territory, whereas Al-Qaeda is not. This is false. Um, Al-Qaeda has a different strategy for doing so, but they are building Islamic Emirates right now, as we sit here, in several countries, including Yemen. And the project in Yemen goes back a long time. In fact, just recently last year, the State Department designated a senior Al-Qaeda and Arabian Peninsula founder and member of Al-Qaeda uh, known as Ibrahim Albanya. 
Uh, this guy was dispatched to Yemen in the early 1990s by Ayman al-Zawahiri and Osama bin Laden to begin to develop their tribal relationships and their network in Yemen with the ultimate goal of trying to transform that society into something that looked like an al-Qaeda state. That's how far in advance they have been thinking about this. I would ask the senators here today what you were doing in 1992 or 1993. I guarantee you probably had no idea where you would be in most cases this many years later in 2017. And yet Al-Qaeda has that sort of forward thinking and strategic thinking about these matters. The other point I'd make is that Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula is often referred to as an affiliate of Al-Qaeda. We've used that language ourselves in the past, but it's actually more than that. Um, on top of being a regional branch of Al-Qaeda, which means it's responsible for waging jihad on the Arabian Peninsula, it also houses senior Al-Qaeda leadership. So for example, Nazar al-Wahashi, who was the former aide-de-camp to Osama bin Laden, he was killed in June 2015. He was actually the number two for Al-Qaeda globally. So his decisions didn't just impact what was going on inside Yemen. We have correspondence from him talking to Al-Qaeda groups in West Africa all the way to South Asia. So what's happening inside Yemen, we believe today that Al-Qaeda still has senior leadership there globally. It's not just about Yemen. It's about the, the, the big picture. Now, one other point I'd make about this, there's recently, um, there was obviously the, count, uh, the uh, controversial counterterrorism raid in January that uh, targeted Abdul Rauf uh, al-Dahab. Um, this is a very interesting character, and this is why it's important to kind of get into the facts. There was a report in the Associated Press saying that Dahab had actually just met with a senior member of Hadi's government the day before that raid that killed him, the day before he was killed in that raid. And then in fact, he was uh, getting funds and other sort of support from people who were involved in the, counter, the fight against the Houthis. This is the type of thing which I would, I would recommend uh, to you senators and to others, anybody who's interested, to take a very close look at. Because Al-Qaeda and Peninsula, what they've done is they've tried to basically integrate themselves with key tribal members, key tribal leaders, and other figures in Yemen. And so that's often very difficult to figure out what you would consider an al-Qaeda leader and what you would consider just a tribal chieftain. Now, that doesn't mean that they have universal tribal support or that all the tribes are on the side or all the local players are on the side. Far from it. Nor does it mean that all the tribes actually have adopted the al-Qaeda ideology. We have to be very careful here. But they have their hooks in, in various places, in ways that are not calculated for us in terms of policy. And so when you look at that from that perspective, that's why the U.S. has successfully taken out numerous senior al-Qaeda leaders in Yemen over and over again, and yet their insurgency grows, their insurgency prospers. Today, the U.S. military CENTCOM estimates that they have a total number of fighters in the low thousands. I think that might be an underestimate, but I'll point you back to the 2008-2009 time frame. The total estimate by the U.S. government at that point was probably in the low hundreds. So this is an insurgency that's grown and is thickened and deepened within Yemen, and it's not going away anytime soon. I'll stop there. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Wren. Thank you, uh, Chairman Corker, Senator Cardin, members of the committee, thanks for inviting me. I'd like to focus this short summary of my testimony on U.S. interests in particular, um, uh, if you'll allow, because I want to focus on the urgent policy objective for the United States in Yemen, which I believe is ending what has become a stalemated conflict. My colleague has already laid out a very important central U.S. national security interest. Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula has grown because of the continuation of this conflict and the tragic human toll and the security vacuum. We have other interests. In Yemen, we have our interest in, in freedom of navigation in the Red Sea. We have a strong interest in protecting Saudi Arabia, our partner and ally's sovereignty. And we have a strong interest in deterring Iranian aggression. So let's just start with U.S. interests, because I think, as the senators have mentioned, our policy and strategy must flow from an analysis of those interests. But in order to secure these interests, the most direct and immediate policy goal should be to end this war. To get there, we need a strategy of de-escalation. 
between the civil conflict that has endured between the government of Yemen and its Salah, between the government of Yemen and the Salah Houthi forces. And we are facing two overlapping battlefields, in a sense. We cannot fully fight Al-Qaeda until we end the other war, which has gone on months and years longer than we thought, than the Saudis thought, and than the Yemenis thought. The United States has tried a strategy of unconditional support for the coalition. We have supported its military operations through a number of military, military and intelligence support elements, including arms sales, but not limited to arms sales. We have backed this coalition because of our deep loyalty to our partners and because we agree we, with the goals of deterring Iran and supporting uh, the government of Yemen. We shared the goal of um, sending a message to the Houthis and the Iranians that interference militarily in a political negotiation is absolutely unacceptable. Yet, even as we've tried this strategy for two years, we always knew that the end game would be a negotiated settlement. Military victory could not and would not finalize feuds and competitions that have been going on for decades. We always knew that the Yemenis themselves would have to sit around a negotiating table and answer the key question of who is going to rule. As the civil war has generated a humanitarian catastrophe in Yemen, we pushed with the United Nations in 2016 last year for the parties to agree to a cessation of hostilities, which lasted three or four months. But then it broke down last August 2016, and it was followed by a wave of renewed violence that was extremely damaging. We began to reevaluate the overarching strategy, realizing that we needed to push ourselves more in a position of defense rather than offense. But let's go back to our interests. Today, there is an urgent threat posed by AQAP and other terrorists, as my colleague has enunciated. The ongoing war has now become a civil conflict between a panoply of forces. It has morphed into a civil conflict with Yemeni militias and security services and Iranian-backed Houthis, plus former President Saleh on one side, against a range of Yemeni militias and the government of Yemen forces on the other side. It's reached a stalemate, as we've heard. The continued fighting is destroying the country and it's leading to a situation where thousands of lives are being lost and 80% of the country is in need of humanitarian assistance. It's the persistence of this conflict that has led to the humanitarian tragedy. It's the persistence of this conflict that has strengthened the Iranian connection to the Houthis. It has deepened Iran's interaction and interference in the Arabian Peninsula and it has benefited Iran geopolitically. It is the endurance and persistence of this conflict that has directly materially advantaged advantaged AQAP. Yet, some are now advocating an escalation in our support strategy, increasing our assistance to the coalition, facilitating directly offensives to retake Houthi areas, including the important port cities of the Red Sea, Red sea area, including Hodeidah. Just to remind the committee, there's, this is the area where 90% of UN food assistance and 70% of Yemen's pre-war commercial food imports enter Yemen. Helping the coalition launch new assaults on Houthi-controlled territory may allow for the capture of new cities, but it will result in even more bloodshed and is unlikely to change the negotiation calculus of either side. The Houthis are looking for guarantees of political inclusion in the formal government process. And these issues will be worked out whether or not the coalition retakes a few more cities. In fact, there's a great danger of escalation and there's a greater danger of a strategy of punishment against the northern area of Yemen. This will not work. We know from other civil conflicts, in fact, that as the human toll worsens, as the insurgents themselves benefit and their maximalist positions harden. And there are also significant risks of escalation for us. While our intent may only be defensive to help our allies fight the Houthis, and Iran and the Houthis may perceive our new forms of support as offensive, inviting greater attacks against our ship and greater insecurity for our interests in the Red Sea and elsewhere. 
There are some who advocate for offensive confrontation with, with Iran, and that might be legitimate. But this is not the most direct or wise way to confront Iranian ambitions in the region. So in short, instead of supporting escalation, we should continue the difficult strategy of refining our strategy and putting America's goals, interests, and values first. We should prioritize counterterrorism, as has been discussed, support the defense of the Saudi Arabian border area and other defensive needs that we have, dissuade the coalition diplomatically from escalating any operations, particularly in Hodeida port area, review our security assistance in keeping with our laws, our policy precedents, and presidential practice since the 1980s, um, continuing focusing on humanitarian access and assistance. We are the largest contributor in terms of numbers of dollars spent on food aid to the Yemeni people, but it's the access of this aid into Yemen that's very important diplomatically. And finally, we should continue doubling down to facilitate dialogue, to generate an immediate truce, followed by a new transitional government. With that, I'd welcome your questions, and I look forward to hearing my colleagues. Thank you very much, Mr. Ambassador. Thank you very much. Uh, Chairman Cor uh, Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, members of the committee, uh, thank you for providing me with this opportunity to speak to you today about Yemen and the tragic circumstances confronting the Yemeni people. Uh, we have all uh, reviewed and recited the statistics uh, of this conflict. Uh, over uh, 10,000 killed, uh, perhaps 40,000 or more injured, uh, UN uh, reports over 3 million of Yemen's 27.5 million uh, citizens internally displaced. Over half of the population is food insecure, and some 7 million Yemenis are malnourished or at risk of starvation. Uh, when the United States and Saudi Arabia, alarmed by the rapid deterioration of political conditions in Sana'a, and faced with a virtual coup there by the Houthis, a pro-Iranian militia, supported by forces loyal to former President Ali Abdullah Saleh, uh, we agree that an intervention in Yemen should seek to achieve four objectives. First, restoring the legitimate government of Yemen to complete implementation of the GCC initiative consistent with United Nations Security Council Resolution 2216. Second, preventing a Houthi Saleh takeover of the government by force. Third, securing the Saudi-Yemeni border, and fourth, defeating Iran's efforts to establish a foothold in the Arabian Peninsula, threatening Saudi and Gulf security. At the outset of the conflict, we were optimistic uh, that the military pressure on the Houthis and Saleh forces would quickly stabilize the situation and allow for a return to the political process. This has not, unfortunately, been the case. After two years of fighting, the military situation is stalemated. The political process, despite some optimism last year that negotiations in Kuwait under the auspices of the United Nations would succeed, has also not made progress. The government of Iran has been a main beneficiary of the conflict in Yemen. At a relatively low cost, Iran has inflicted an expensive, draining conflict on the Saudis and their coalition partners, the Saudis have suffered reputational damage internationally, and the conflict has caused friction between Saudi Arabia and its key Western partners, the United States and the United Kingdom. It's important as well to address an additional complication in the Yemen equation, as my colleague, uh, Mr. Jocelyn, has observed. That is the resurgence of Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Legitimately concerned by Al-Qaeda's ability to resurrect its presence in Yemen, 
and potentially pose new threats to global peace and security, the U.S. has resumed kinetic operations to deter and defeat the organization. I believe that the U.S. actions are justifiable, but the additional layers of complexity that we now confront in Yemen argue for extreme caution in conducting military operations there. Our objective of defeating and destroying violent extremism in Yemen is a long-term challenge that requires a long view on achieving it. Preserving the goodwill and cooperation of the Yemeni people is essential if we are to be successful, and there is no quicker way to lose that goodwill than through ill-conceived military operations that generate high numbers of civilian casualties. Thus, we must maintain the standard of near certainty that there will be no collateral damage in our operations, and we must preserve our strong record of cooperation with President Hadi and his government. In my experience, the U.S. Ambassador is a key player in maximizing our effectiveness, both as the main interlocutor with the government and as a U.S. official with the most accurate perspective on the impact these operations are having on the ground. In conclusion, with little prospect of an immediate resolution of the conflict and in the face of increasing complexity as tribal, sectarian, and counterterrorism issues are introduced, Yemen's ultimate survival as a unified country hangs in the balance. Under those circumstances, we should aim at achieving two basic goals in 2017. First, a limited political agreement that allows the parties to return to Sana'a to continue their negotiations, provides for security in the capital, and restores some functionality to the government. And second, urgent measure, measures to address the humanitarian crisis. If successful, these measures will provide for the stability needed to make further progress in the coming year to install a new interim government, complete the transition process, begin to address broader security issues, promote economic activity, and prepare for elections. Mr. Chairman, even with success in these tasks, Yemen's recovery will be long and the ultimate measures, uh, uh, and the ultimate outcome not assured. But without these measures, Yemen's continued descent into complete social, political, and economic collapse is all but guaranteed. Thank you, and I look forward to addressing your questions. We thank you all for your testimony. Uh, five minutes on the clock. I'm going to reserve my time for interjections and turn to our ranking member. As I indicated in my opening statement, I have concerns about consequences of actions taken without a coordinated strategy that could escalate U.S. involvement and may not be constructive to accomplishing our objectives. So, Dr. Rand, I want to ask you first about the port of Hudada and whether there is some interest as to whether there would be military action supported by the United States in regards to retaking that port. You seem to indicate that that could be counterproductive and I'd like to get, because that may be something that's being considered, I would like to get your view on the consequences of that type of a military operation. Sure, thank you for the question. It's an important one. There's two answers to your question, Senator. One is the short term, one is the long term. In the short term, the fighting itself to 
reconquer, retake the port will have significant damage in terms of humanitarian access. Remember, this is a commercial system where companies are sending ships into this port. If there's fighting, it will deter the flow of the companies who are sending the ships in. We've seen this before in the early days of the fighting. And indeed, the State Department and the U.S. government has worked very hard with the U.N., with UNVIM, to try to ensure the flow of passage of the humanitarian goods into the Red Sea, et cetera. So in the short term, the fighting itself will just make it difficult for the humanitarian access that, that's needed. Then there's a the longer term question, which is just the huge risk. Let's say the coalition retakes the port area. Uh, it would have to quickly reestablish a scalable humanitarian system where it could distribute aid to the rest of the country, because that would be needed immediately. This is the lifeblood, as I mentioned, of the aid getting into the country. So we'd be taking a significant risk on the coalition's ability to scale up its humanitarian capacity, and also, uh, as I said, to ensure that the coalition, if it was retaken, did not use a, a, a strategy of punishing the North and Sana'a. Remember, Sana'a would still be under Houthi control, and so it would require the coalition generosity to ensure true food and aid transport. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, I want to get your view as to how we change the equation. The only way we're going to be able to get a negotiated settlement on the Civil War is to get the Houthis and the Saudis uh, to be able to sit down and really negotiate the terms of uh, a future for Yemen. Uh, how do we change the equations for the Houthis and for the Saudis so that becomes more of a reality? You might want to use your microphone, maybe. Yeah. Uh, I, I would uh, take a little bit of issue with Dr. Rand's comments on Hodeida. I think, actually, if successful, um, a, a coalition victory in Hodeida would not only facilitate the delivery of humanitarian assistance to um, what is 75 or 80 percent of the population of Yemen in the northern part of the country, uh, but it would also change the equation somewhat and increase the pressure on the Houthis and Ali Abdullah Saleh to agree uh, to a political way forward. Uh, I do believe that uh, we should support the United Nations efforts to resume. And as you uh, probably know, uh, Secretary General Gutierrez. Well, what will change the, the Houthis' equation? I mean, they have the support from Iran. They have ge geography. Uh, what changes their equation here? Well, I, I think it's in their interest to sit down. Several, uh, several uh, developments have occurred in, in recent weeks. So one is that the coalition has succeeded in capturing the port of Mocha farther south in the country uh, and is uh, increasing its control over the Tahama, the Red Sea coast, uh, <laughs> which has restricted the flow of weapons uh, into uh, the Houthis and Ali Abdullah Saleh, which was mostly coming across the Red Sea uh, from Somalia being smuggled in. Uh, and so there has been some limitation on the ability of the Houthis to maintain uh, their military uh, uh, pressure and, and presence. Uh, I think that the key thing is to demonstrate to the, uh, particularly to the Houthis, uh, that in fact there is no military objective, there is no military uh, end to this conflict, uh, and that they are best 
to try to uh, secure a negotiated settlement. How's the, who's the best person? Who, how do you convince them of that? I, they're not going to listen to the United States. No, they're not. not listen to Saudi. So how, how, do we get, how do we change the equation? Here? Well, I, I think that uh, support for the United Nations, and, and again, I think as we've all uh, noted, uh, including yourself, uh, there was some optimism last year. In fact, there was a period last spring where uh, people felt uh, that there was movement on the political negotiation. So let me ask you one last question. How do we change our, how do we influence the Saudis to be more aggressive to pursue peace? We have a lot of engagement with the Saudis. We have leverage. We're their partners. We're their supporters. How do we use that to get more interest in a negotiated settlement? First, I would, I would um, say that in terms of the premise of the question, my own experience, my own conversations with the Saudis, I don't think we need to do a lot to convince them. I think the Saudis would uh, be desperate to get out of this conflict. It's costing them huge amounts of money. It's costing them uh, a tremendous uh, uh, reputational damage around the world. Uh, I don't think that there's any question that the Saudis would like to see an end to this conflict under the right set of circumstances. The right set of circumstances means that they have to be confident that there's a friendly government in, in Sana'a. We can achieve that through the United Nations negotiations, through uh, an agreement on the uh, basis of UN Security Council Resolution 2216, uh, which would allow for negotiation and the installation of a new interim government that would maintain that kind of balance. And uh, I think that the other key point, there are two other key points. One is uh, that we are going to all depend on the Saudis after this conflict is over to take the lead on the reconstruction of Yemen. Nobody else is going to do it except Saudi Arabia. And therefore, there's a strong argument to be made that, that we need to make sure that the outcome of this conflict is one that the Saudis uh, believe defends or protects their vital national interest, security of the border, and a friendly government in Sana'a. The second uh, point is that, uh, uh, as I think several of my colleagues have mentioned, the, the nature of the conflict has metastasized. It's not simply a conflict anymore between the Houthis and Ali Abdullah Saleh on one side and the government and their coalition partners on the other side. It is, in fact, now a tribal conflict in many areas of the country. Al-Qaeda has, as Mr. Jocelyn pointed out quite correctly, Al-Qaeda has uh, succeeded in uh, putting roots down with, with tribes, not necessarily because the tribes share ideological uh, views with Al-Qaeda, but simply because Al-Qaeda is seen as a supporter of Sunni Arab, uh, Sunni tribal interests versus uh, the Zaidi Shia uh, Houthis, uh, and uh, therefore that they are a source of support, even if uh, these, uh, the tribal elements don't agree with uh, global jihadist uh, tendencies in Al-Qaeda. So it's become a much more complicated uh, conflict. Yeah. Thank you. I, I would just ask, we've got to vote at noon, and I know people are very interested in the hearing, so if we could have the time for the answer during the five-minute period, that'd be great, too. Senator Paul. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to the uh, panel for coming today. The United States has the technical ability to kill anyone, anywhere, anytime. But just because we can doesn't mean we should. And I think we don't have enough discussion about the practical ramifications of whether or not we kill more terrorists than we create. 
I think Yemen is a perfect example of this. We're supplying Saudis with bombs, refueling the planes, picking the targets. I assume that we didn't pick the target of a funeral procession, but uh, we wounded 500 people and uh, 140 people. I say we, the Saudis did it, but with our armaments. You think the Yemenis don't know where the bombs are coming from? We recently had a raid, and I don't blame our soldiers. I mean, I have members of my family who actively serve. They do what they're told. But we're the policymakers. I mean, we sent them into Yemen. I've still not been told why we went to Yemen. Someone's got to make a decision. Did we, in killing a, you know, a few of the al-Qaeda in that village, was that worth the fact that we had to kill women and children, or women and children were inadvertently killed in that, including an American citizen? So I guess my question to Dr. Rand is, do you think we're adequately weighing whether we're creating more terrorists than we kill, whether we're doing more good than we are doing harm, whether we are safer or more at risk? I think your testimony was at least reasoned in the sense that will we be better off? Yes, we can take a new port in Yemen. We can do anything. But in the end, will we be safer or better off if we continue the way we're continuing? Thank you. Uh, thank you, Senator. Let me address two parts of that question. Um, it's an excellent question. On the issue of the CT rays, raids, look, kinetic strikes are the way that this administration, the previous administration, have used, have, have fought the CT threat. The issue, as, as the ambassador mentioned, is the national security process that adjudicates and, tra and, and, and assesses and analyzes the costs. So the reputational costs, the public opinion costs, the policy costs, brings in the State Department, brings in the experts to really look through the military plan, plan. So this sounds really wonky and bureaucratic, but it's really important that for this type of CT process, there's a real bureaucratic process in place. And I think that addresses some of the, the, the risks and trade-offs that you mentioned on the CT side. On the Houthi side, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, in IHL issues, there are strikes that are international humanitarian law. There are strikes that can be lawful in the sense that they're proportionate and discriminate, but they're not wise. And that's something that our targeters in Afghanistan learned when they were fighting a counterinsurgency, generals McChrystal, Petraeus, et cetera. They learned that in fighting insurgents, you need to pick your targets really carefully because you're focusing on the hearts and minds. And I'd like to follow up real quickly with one additional question. Um, there are those who argue that in Syria, by getting involved in a Syrian civil war and pushing back Assad, that there was a vacuum created and the vacuum was filled by ISIS. There are some who argue that the same could happen in Yemen by getting involved in a civil war where we push one side or the other, that a vacuum will occur and within that vacuum, Al-Qaeda may be strong enough to fill that vacuum. Um, do you think we're adequately, Dr. Rand, assessing the potential that we're doing more harm than good by being involved in this civil war, and that for some reason, you know, it was said that the person that was a target in the Yemeni raid was actually fighting against the Houthis. So not really our ally, but also he was fighting the common enemy. Are we, are we really adequately understanding that out of this mayhem that perhaps Al-Qaeda grows stronger? 
Exactly, that's exactly the point. There are these two discrete battlefields. There's our fight against Al-Qaeda and our partners are joining us in the fight and then there's the internal Yemeni conflict. The problem is if you're in Yemen on the ground, you can't differentiate always and it's easy, as I said in my testimony, my written testimony, just to blame America. You know America's involved and so in both cases, this is adding fuel to the fire and that's why I respectfully disagree with my colleague about the value of a new offensive. We've already tried for two years the strategy of offensives to retake areas to allow for the political dynamics to change and there are significant costs to our relationships, to the civilians of Yemen, to our reputation. Uh, we've tried that approach for two years and I just don't believe that the risks uh, are, are worth it anymore. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you all for your testimony. Uh, Al-Qaeda in Yemen has been described to me as the biggest threat to the American homeland that exists right now. Do you all agree with that? Um, I, think it, I think it's part of a, a, a big threat from Al-Qaeda to the U.S. homeland. It's not the only part of Al-Qaeda. It's integrated into Al-Qaeda's external operations, which cut across several different countries. And you would see it as a bigger threat than ISIS? <clears throat> I think... Um, the way I put this, Senator, not to be too crude, ISIS is the one that wants to basically stab you in the front. Al-Qaeda is the one that wants to stab you in the back. And what they're doing in Yemen and what they've been doing across several countries is laying plans for a possible attack in the U.S. or elsewhere against Americans. Dr. Rand, do you agree? Um, between Al-Qaeda, the Raven Peninsula, and ISIS, you know, the question is, is our American uh, citizens on our homeland the, in, in their... Uh, you know, they're, they're the highest priority to target. I think, and we know that Al-Qaeda Arabian Peninsula is trying to target Americans, so I'd have to say yes. Ambassador? I would, uh, I would say that at this particular juncture, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula is not in a position to, um, to launch global attacks. They're not in a position uh, to, uh, to strike at the United States. The last time Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula um, attempted that was in 2010 with a cartridge uh, bomb uh, uh, effort. Uh, since then, they have not been able to recreate uh, re, uh, themselves, resurrect themselves. I think that they have that ambition, uh, but as long as the conflict is going on, the ability uh, to actually do that, I think, is limited. But my understanding is that the cartridge bomber responsible for that bombing attempt is still there, and he has not been Eliminated. Yes, uh, uh, Mr. Rasiri, uh, who is the bomb maker for AQAP, as far as we know, is still in Yemen. Um, given that, it's hard for me to understand how we can address that threat if we're not if we're not fighting back against Al Qaeda, where it exists. Uh, I absolutely uh, agree. Um, I think that we need to, uh, but again, within a, within a context, uh, the, the thing that I think is most important is that the Yemeni people uh, understand who is Al-Qaeda and they understand who's not Al-Qaeda. Uh, as long as they see that the targets that we're hitting are, are Al-Qaeda, that the people that we are uh, going after are legitimate uh, Al-Qaeda targets, I don't think that we have a big problem with the Yemeni populace uh, I think that they're supportive. Where we get into trouble is when we uh, are the source of collateral damage. And I agree entirely with uh, Dr. Rand that, that uh, this, is, this is where the issue is and why it's so important that we be careful about identifying targets and making sure 
before we uh, go after a target that we can do it without causing unnecessary collateral damage. Thank you. Are we seeing any evidence of Russian engagement in Yemen? Historically, uh, the Russians have been good partners for us uh, in Yemen. They were, uh, they were very uh, much involved in the effort in 2011 and 2012 to advance the uh, political transition plan. Uh, they um, continue to support the UN process. Of course, they voted in favor of UN Security Council Resolution 2216. Uh, they uh, kept their embassy open in, in Sana'a, unlike uh, the United States, uh, and uh, they continue to be engaged. I think that they are uh, somewhat more supportive of Iran and, and of some of the things that are going on these days than we are. But on the other hand, they are still supporting the political process. Anybody disagree with that? Um, and given Iran's support for the Houthis, is there any, any reason to think they are going to be interested in um, seeing um, a peace negotiation anytime soon? Anybody? For Iran, this is still a cheap, uh, a cheap win for them. Uh, and so unless the larger regional dynamic changes, they really have no particular interest in seeing an end to the fighting in Yemen. The issue is whether, for regional reasons, uh, they decide that they would like to improve their relationship. We've seen uh, over the last uh, few weeks, uh, the um, uh, President Rouhani has traveled through the Gulf. Uh, the, uh, the Foreign Minister of Kuwait uh, uh, has visited uh, Tehran, so there's some indication that perhaps they would like to see a change in the nature of the relationship with the region, perhaps as a way of diffusing U.S. pressure, uh, and that could change, but otherwise I don't see a reason for them to change. So should we be providing weapons to the Saudis that allow them to better target um, their raids in Yemen? Again, I, I, I would say, uh, from my perspective, absolutely. I, I don't understand why, uh, if you're concerned about uh, Saudi act, uh, actions causing collateral damage, you would limit the ability of them to acquire the kinds of weapons that would limit uh, collateral damage and would allow them to be more accurate. Sorry, I think I would disagree on that. The Obama administration oversaw the transfer of $110 billion worth of FMS. Saudi Arabia is the largest recipient of FMS sales in the world right now, thanks in large part to the Obama administration's support for this ally. In 2015, um, the U.S. government offered technical training on cyber, ballistic missiles, border security, counterterrorism, and maritime security. The U.S. government has been an incredibly good and supportive partner to Saudi Arabia. I, I agree, but, but they have not allowed for the transfer of weapons that would allow them to better target um, what they're trying to hit. The precision guided munitions um, were transferred in 2015 on the hopes that indeed, as you're saying, Senator, they would enable better and more precise targeting by the coalition of the targets itself. That was the theory, that was the argument. The State Department, our teams came here and told your staff that in 2015. The precision guided munitions of 2015 would help their targeting. Uh, you agreed after some discussion. Without giving a history, just give an answer if sure. you Sure, um, what we've seen since is uh, not an improvement in the targeting, and the issue itself is the target selection. And it's not the precision of the target itself, but it is the choice of targets and adherence to the no strike list. Thank you. I would disagree with that assessment, but uh, everybody has their own opinion. Senator Resch. Thank you. Um, as we sit here, first of all, uh, all of you have been very good, I think, as far as describing the problem there, um, and, and most of us, I think, are, are aware of that. Uh, the the 
views is very pessimistic. I mean, there's, uh, I haven't heard any of you uh, uh, talk about a quick resolution of this or, or, or even a path uh, towards certainty of getting the thing resolved. I, I'm not, I'm certainly not chiding you for that. I mean, this, this is difficult. The parallels here uh, to Syria are really pretty striking. Um, you, you've, got a, uh, you've got a government that failed to, to a certain degree, and uh, you've got warring factions, basically two overall, but that really doesn't tell the whole story because there are so many of these underlying conflicts uh, involving the tribes and involving other foreign nations involving themselves uh, in this fight for, and, and all have their own reasons and their own purposes, and so the 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 parallels to to Syria are to me very very close. <laughs> in that regard, the solution, whatever that might be, also uh, is uh, a parallel. But the uh, Ms. Rand, with, with all due respect to your uh, to, to your description of it, your description is a uh, is a um, description that that would fit in a perfect world. And, and uh, you know, you slap them alongside the head, sit down at the table, resolve your differences, and let's get on with life. There, and and that, that kind of falls in with what we as Americans always do, and that is try to think about resolution the way we would think about re re uh, resolution. And, and they aren't there. A good example of that is the Iranians. I mean, the Iranians could bring this thing to a screeching halt pretty quickly if they pulled the carpet out from under the Houthis. Now, not completely, but it would certainly weaken the Houthis tremendously if they weren't uh, providing weapons. But is there anybody in this room thinks think that the Iranians are interested in resolving this? I mean, this is, this is, uh, uh, th this is a, a perfect for them. You know, they're able to, to fight this proxy uh, sort of war with us and with, uh, uh, with the West and, and do it pretty cheaply, as has been uh, indicated here. So I, I don't know. I'm, I, I'm, I'm, number one, I'm very pessimistic about it. Number two, I haven't heard anything that, that talks about really a, a practical solution to this and Unfortunately, the, uh, the thinking about it uh, makes you come to the conclusion that this is a Rubik's Cube that, that's missing some parts and, and really can't be resolved, just like the situation we got in Syria. So, Mr. Chaslin, I'll let you comment on that first. Well, you know, there are actually, uh, Senator, I agree with a lot of what you just said. And to Senator Cardin's point earlier, he was asking for sort of creative solutions to the conflict. The, well, there are two things on the Houthi side that are, are, have to be understood. It's not just Iran that is backing the Houthis, but also President Saleh's network in Yemen that plays a key role in this. In 2014, he was designated by the U.S. Treasury Department for his support for the Houthis. In 2015, his son, a former high-ranking military official in the Yemen military, was designated by the U.S. Treasury Department as a key sort of force multiplier for the Houthis. They bring with them a tribal structure, infrastructure within Yemen that is playing a big role here. Now, what we have to understand is he's not a natural ally necessarily for the Houthis. He and his forces fought them in the past. And you know there is possibly, I don't know, I'm not making a prognostication here, but if you want a creative sort of idea to maybe start trying to unwind this whole thing, he doesn't want to necessarily serve Iran's agenda in Yemen. His, his objectives aren't necessarily in lockstep with Iran and what they want to do. He wants power inside Yemen. He wants his family to have power inside Yemen. 
to start a diplomatic initiative or other talks to try and maybe start peeling him away from the Houthi insurgency or to sort of recognize that you're not going to end his interest overnight. I'm not saying that's easy. I don't even know if it could be done, but at least it's a creative sort of start to this instead of just seeing the Houthis as solely sort of dependent on Iran. But if you resolve it without him, he's not going away. Right, that's and my that, point. And that doesn't resolve the conflict. Ms. Rand, 30 seconds. No, I would agree. Um, you know, look, the intransigence is coming from both sides. In fact, the proxies probably are more flexible. The Saudi Arabian government, as the ambassador said, is probably willing to, to make a deal and to compromise. The government of Yemen has shown some intransigence and, this, and the uh, president, forces of President Saleh. I think there is room for trade space. I think in the last six months, there have been really good back-channel efforts that came really close. There was a step-for-step -step approach that Secretary Kerry used that was very promising that moved beyond the 2261 formula. So there are creative efforts that have been underway and have gone. And this is station of hostilities for three months really was an effort at real negotiations and did mitigate the violence in a way that served U.S. interests. Uh, time's up. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you so much. Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, for calling another important hearing. Um, once again, I just want to echo that. I appreciate the expertise of this panel. Uh, and out of safety for uh, our uh, diplomats abroad, we don't have a operational embassy in Yemen because uh, uh, all of, all of, obviously the risk in which our foreign service and diplomatic professionals would have to work. Uh, and however, while we don't have an embassy, they can communicate and execute American foreign policy, but they need a policy to execute. Uh, and as we increase military operations in Yemen, it seems to me that we must insist upon policy leadership from the State Department. Airstrikes are not a policy. Intelligence gathering operations are not a policy. Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula remains one of the most dangerous terrorist offshoots of Al-Qaeda, Al and whatever the scope of its intentions, Iranian support for terrorist networks is achieving, at the very least, an objective of continuing destabilization of the Arabian Peninsula. Now, this committee is tasked with overseeing the administration's foreign policy agenda, the objectives it makes to accomplish that objective uh, and that agenda, and the execution of those objectives. So as much as I respect uh, and admire the men and women serving in these operations and the civilian leaders that are ordering them, we cannot cede foreign policy decision-making to the Department of Defense or the intelligence community. And the sooner that we get there, the better off we will be. However, with that in mind, uh, I do want to take advantage of your expertise. I know that you've talked somewhat about Iran here. I'd like to, in essence, uh, heard different views. What is Iran's end game as it relates to Yemen? Uh, we know that Iran has transferred sophisticated weapons, provided some support to Houthi fighters, uh, many ex experts say that the Iran-Houthi relationship is not the same as the Les Lebanese Hezbollah, Assad in Syria, or Shia militias in Iraq. But what are the end goals of Iran in Yemen? Could any of you speak to that? I would have to say that uh, uh, from our experience, what, what Iran would um, see as a, as a good outcome would be either a government in Sana'a that was friendly to them and provided them with opportunities to bring in people, to bring in uh, more weapons to challenge uh, uh, Saudi security, uh, or at the very least a continuation of the instability in Yemen uh, that allows for them to continue 
uh, to undermine Saudi security and to pose threats uh, to the, uh, the border region. And I think that one of the things that we've seen uh, over the, uh, the course of this conflict, and especially in recent months, uh, is that uh, the Houthis uh, have uh, focused a lot of their energy and effort on launching missiles inside Saudi Arabia. Uh, the missiles that they're being provided by the Iranians now are longer range and more threatening to uh, Saudi populations, uh, and also to cross the border and seize territory in ways that are difficult for the Saudis to respond. So I would think that for the Iranians, a continuation of that, if not absolutely an improvement, would be a real objective. So a general distraction that uh, distracts Gulf countries' attentions from other objectives then? And, and, threatens, uh, and threatens Saudi Arabia. I think from a Saudi perspective, what they see is a pattern of Iran trying to establish an encirclement of the Arabian Peninsula. So not only in Yemen, but in Bahrain, and in Syria and Iraq, in Gaza. Uh, initially, they made an effort to establish in Sudan. Uh, so uh, a whole range of, of, uh, of friendly governments that uh, together can be a threat to uh, uh, the security of the peninsula. Any other views, Dr. Ryan? I would agree that that is the sort of the end game. I would note that the defeat or of, of the Houthis per se um, through an offensive or otherwise would not be as hard of a blow to Iran as, for example, a loss of power by Hez of Hezbollah, um, the KH in Iraq, other groups that you mentioned. They're less core to the Iranian national security. So it's the flip side of what you said is also that the defeat of it is less central. It wouldn't really knock them down in their regional ambitions in the same way. In fact, the concern that I've had in the past couple of weeks is the new administration's um, support for, for Hezbollah in Syria that's doing the actual fighting um, on behalf of the regime in Damascus, that really empowers Iran because Hezbollah is really on the front lines. Hezbollah and the IRGC retook Aleppo, essentially, and that's given them a certain amount of prestige in the Sunni-Shia confrontation. So I'm watching that as more of a concern in terms of Iran's regional growing prestige in the region. One last question. The flip side of that, what's the end game for the Saudis? I think the end game for the Saudis is a friendly government in Sana'a uh, and one that, again, can work with them to, uh, to ensure security of the border region, push back against uh, the Iranians. And also, I think, uh, increasingly, as this conflict has gone along, we've seen uh, both uh, among the Saudis and the Emiratis a new appreciation of the threat of violent extremism of AQAP and a greater willingness on their part to really partner with us in effective ways to uh, contest it. I, I want to respond to your, your opening comment, not to counter it in any way. I, we, we do need people in positions here, and hopefully they'll be filled soon. I, I will just add, though, that uh, I met this morning with our national security advisor and talked to General Mattis yesterday. And I think you know, spent some time with Tillerson last week. I actually think we have an opportunity as a committee that we haven't, that I don't think has existed for a decade. It's not since I've been here, where we have an opportunity to develop with uh, them a longer term strategy as it relates to the Middle East and other issues that has not existed. And so uh, I don't get the sense at all that the State Department, uh, you know, these things you're reading about Tillerson, his dinner with the president every week, talks to him multiple times each day. I think what you're seeing instead is 
Madison Tillerson having a commitment that nothing comes to the National Security Council without them both agreeing in advance before it occurs. So anyone who may fear that uh, we're exporting uh, foreign policy to the, to, to the Defense Department, I, I don't see that happening at all. It's my goal to ensure that that doesn't happen, and I, it's also my goal that this committee, uh, Republicans and Democrats, are uh, intertwined in this policy developing like we've never seen before since most of us have been here. I believe that is going to be the case, and I, I don't say that to counter what you're saying. No, I, 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 see, I think we have a tremendous opportunity with people who are new to this, who are reaching out and developing their policies. Uh, Mr. That Chairman, Senator Rubio. I may just respond since uh, yeah. it was in response to my comments. Let me just say that I, I appreciate the, that you are speaking to the NSC and to uh, the Secretary. The problem is, and I appreciate the possibility of the committee playing an even more significant role, the problem is that for those of us who don't have necessarily that line of communication, this whole other level yeah. of uh, individuals would provide a basis for which that engagement could take place. And it's only in that sense, uh, I think uh, I want to echo the ranking member's comments, that generally we, unless we have a flamethrower, uh, we have been pretty bipartisan in moving out nominations uh, in this uh, in this committee. So I'm yeah. just hoping for that moment so I we can have a greater opportunity. More. I, in no way dissuading that thought. I, I could not agree more. Uh, Senator Rubio. Yeah, that's a great conversation. Actually, it's part of a broader situation that involves Yemen, and that is my hope that the National Security Council will move back to its original role, which is to be kind of an internal think tank that develops strategic views of every region in the world. And then, you know, it's right. the State Department in consultation with the State Department, the Department of Defense, and others to carry out the appropriate strategy, but also the tactics. So many, so many of our debates in this committee, so many of our debates in Washington have been tactical, airstrike or no airstrike, armed or don't arm. But sometimes we feel like it's not in the furtherance of a, of a strategy, and so this is an important uh, part of that. This conversation, I think, calls that to light. You know, what, what is our strategy with regards to Yemen? And, and I think that should be driven by our national interests, which I don't think you would, anybody on the panel would disagree are twofold. One is the counterterrorism aspect of it. From everything I have seen and testified here today, Al-Qaeda in Yemen is the new Fatah in many ways. It is now the core area where you see Al-Qaeda actually being able to prosper, create anchor, and, and establish. And they have deep links to Yemen that go back a tremendous amount of time. And they take advantage of an ungoverned space. So that's first and foremost. We don't want Yemen to be an ungoverned space because ungoverned space is the breeding ground for Al-Qaeda and ISIS before them. And while it seems that Al-Qaeda has historically been very patient in pursuing the sort of state functions that ISIS immediately embraced. They have had ambitions to do that, and Yemen sounds like a pretty good place for them to try to do it. In fact, they did try to do it until very recently and have proven to be enduring in their desire to, at some point, peel back and reconstitute at the appropriate time. So that's our first interest. And the other, which we shouldn't ignore, is the question that Senator Menendez just asked, and I know a lot of people have asked, and that is, what is the Iranian intention in the region? And so there's this, all this discussion about, are the Houthis under the command and control of the Iranians? I wouldn't judge whether or not they are a proxy simply by whether command and control, because I would argue that over the last five years, Hezbollah's um, relationship with Iran has strengthened and grown as a result of functionality. The more capable they've proven in Syria and in other places, the stronger that link has become. But this is the Iranian strategy. They're not going to build 10 aircraft carriers to try to match us. They are going to seek asymmetrical ways to influence the region and pursue their ambitions. Well, some of it may be through someone they're very closely linked with, 
Others may be through these entities that they use as second proxies. But in the case of, of, of the Houthis, there, I don't think there's any debate that they are receiving substantial amount of assistance from the Iranians and that the level of assistance immediately correlates into actions. In essence, the lethality and the volume of attack that they've undertaken is in line with the amount of support that they've received. And we've seen open source reporting, IRGC officials being captured and killed. They're there, they're on the ground in the furtherance of the strategy. So as I hear all this conversation about a negotiated settlement, I don't think that in the Iranian view of the world, a negotiated power sharing agreement sounds really well, really good in the halls of Western diplomatic conversation. But in Iranian geopolitical views, that's, they would probably prefer the situation that's there now than they would any sort of power sharing. They're not involved in this because they're concerned about ethnic minorities not having a voice in government. They're involved because they see the opportunity to create a beachhead of influence neighboring uh, on the periphery of who they view as their strategic rival for dominance in the region. And they want this to be protracted. And even if you could find a bunch of people among the Houthis that were willing to be involved in some power sharing, Iran will always be able to find some element in Yemen willing to accept weapons because it's tempting to have that level of power. And in some parts of the world, the more weapons you have, the more powerful and influential you've become. And that's why I'm not against diplomacy. I think diplomacy is important. And I think if we could figure out a negotiated settlement that brings this to a peaceful conclusion, we should pursue it. I just hope we don't put too many eggs in that basket because the people that are fueling this on the Iranian side are not that big on negotiated diplomatic Western European models of diplomacy. They view this as a uh, geopolitical opportunity to destabilize the region for purposes of being able to leverage Saudi Arabia and the United States as a base of operation. And if it happens to have the side effect of Al-Qaeda building, well, that's an additional thing that they think is great in terms of sapping our resources. So I, I've just said a lot of different things about this whole dynamic because I think it's important that we start talking about, as, as the chairman just said, the sort of strategic view that they're trying to undertake with this, in consultation with the State Department and defense and everybody else. We, do have, we debate a lot about tactics, we do. but if tactics aren't driven by a strategy, then they're not nearly as effective and we kind of have to stop and start. And by the way, it helps with our allies. And so, but, but the, in the minute that I have left, the question is this, irrespective of what we may think, about what the ideal solution is, which is this big peace treaty where everybody sits down, shake hands, they have a government and everybody's happy with it. The Saudis are gonna pursue their national interest with or without us. And their national interest in their mind is ensuring that there is not a Iranian influence of any sort on their periphery. And therefore, my question is this, irrespective of what we do, the Saudis are going to continue to do what they believe is in their national interest with or without our guidance uh, in terms of carrying out the military components of this. Am I Am I wrong in saying that? No, sir. You are 100% correct. In Those all are my favorite answers when people. <laughs> in all of in all of your comments, uh, uh, the the one thing I would say, of course, is that as you looked at the counterterrorism uh, priority that the United States has, and as you look at the reality of the geopolitical situation, these two things are in conflict. Our interest and the Saudi interest is enforcing a resolution, a political resolution of this conflict that allows you to have a government in Sana'a that can partner with us effectively and begin to push back on the CT threat. But also on the Iranian uh, efforts. Absolutely. Thank you both. Senator Coons. Thank you, Chairman Corker. Um, I'd like to thank the Chairman, Ranking Member, and the panel um, for this important hearing. 
Um, and I'm going to simply try to extend um, the conversation that you were just having with Senator Rubio, who I think correctly perceives what is Iran's goal here, which is a relatively low risk, low cost to them opportunity to continue to harass and provide pressure uh, on the kingdom uh, and to destabilize um, the region. Let, let me just move to a related question um, that was touched on, but that I'd, I'd like to better understand. Um, we've got a significant humanitarian crisis here. You've got nearly 7 million Yemenis in, in need of immediate food aid, nearly half a million children, um, according to UNICEF, suffering from acute malnutrition. Um, what have we accomplished with our humanitarian aid so far? Um, and what would cuts in our contributions to the United Nations and to USAID funding do in terms of its impact um, on the course of all the need for humanitarian assistance? And is there a way that our humanitarian assistance, either through the UN or directly or indirectly World Food Program, can contribute to our strategic objective, which is frankly to dull the influence of Iran, to provide some space between Iran uh, and the Houthis and to achieve some sort of reconciliation or stability in Yemen? Uh, thank you, Senator, for the good question. Our humanitarian assistance has been very, very important, um, combined with our diplomatic efforts multilaterally with many, many partners who contributed. I mentioned UNVIM, which is the UN mechanism that's allowing the aid to be dispersed. It's very complicated. It's a battlefield, you know, um, and has helped the aid organizations uh, distribute. So that the UN has been critical partner and has helped, um, essentially, and so we could not do this without the United Nations, to answer your question. Um, in terms of using aid and assistance to drive a wedge, the hearts and minds of the Yemenis are being shaped by the airstrikes to some extent. So, you know, they are angry because they see sorties overhead that are dropping bombs on their communities for whatever reason, you know, they know. So, and this is particularly true in the Houthi-controlled area. So I do not necessarily believe that absent the end to the airstrikes, just a strategy focused on aid alone would win the hearts and the minds and bring back the, the views and the political sentiments of those in the north and the west of the country or Sana'a um, to change their minds. I, I think uh, um, I, I would disagree a, a little bit with that. I, I think that, again, uh, not to not to beat uh, uh, the dead horse too much, but if we can if we can get um, Hodeida operating again, um, there are uh, there there's been a great deal of damage to the port. The ability to bring humanitarian goods into the port has been limited because of uh, damage from uh, airstrikes. Uh, if we can get the uh, port functioning 100% uh, and be able to deliver humanitarian assistance, the United States is uh, the number one uh, supporter of United Nations humanitarian assistance. It's incredibly important. Uh, I would, um, based on my own experience, I, I would uh, be a little bit cautious about assuming uh, what Yemenis think or how uh, uh, upset or angry they are about things. I think Yemenis are pragmatic and practical people. Uh, and that if we can begin to address the humanitarian crisis, uh, that we could um, uh, make important steps towards creating an environment that's conducive to a longer-term political, sustainable political so uh, solution. Thank you. If I could just ask Mr. Jocelyn a last question. Uh, about the connection between the Houthis uh, and Iranian uh, controller direction, do you think the American response uh, to Houthi attacks on the USS Mason uh, October of last year were sufficient to deter future attacks of that type? And 
What role does Iran play in um, directing the Houthis to launch maritime attacks off the Red Sea coast? You know, it's a great question. I, there's not a lot of specific intelligence on how much direction Iranians are actually giving the Houthis. There's a lot of evidence on the output side, sort of weapon, we can see weapon shipments and that sort of thing. My main concern about the relationship is that the Iranians will try and procure assets within the Houthis who become more friendly to them over time. Again, they're not a Hezbollah-type situation where they're a directly owned proxy of the Iranians, but they're using, the Iranians are using this conflict to probably convert people within the Houthi world to basically their cause in the long run. I don't know how much direction they did or did not give to these specific attacks on the ships. And in terms of being sufficient, um, since we've seen attacks since, on other ships since then, it has not dissuaded them from attacking other ships, including from other countries. So, What more could we be doing to effectively intercept or deter weapons shipments or transfers from Iran or from Iranian agents uh, to the Houthis? You know, the, the bottom line is that uh, if you look back through all the reporting, the U.S., Australia, France, there have been numerous ships um, sort of intercepted by the sort of world community, you know, going into Yemen. The only part of the game, I mean, I think there's already a massive effort to do that on, in sort of the, the sea shipping lanes. The key is going to be on the ground in terms of where the weapons go once they get in, because you're not going to stop all the shipments, and we haven't stopped all the shipments. And again, without sort of building up capacity, governance capacity within Yemen to actually stop that, you're just, there's no way to get at it. Thank you very much. Thank you. I, I thank our panel for your uh, compelling testimony. I, I want to pick up on uh, where Mr. Coons began, which is addressing the humanitarian crisis. Uh, Mr. Firestein, uh, you cite some uh, really sobering numbers um, from the United Nations uh, Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. Uh, they reported over 3 million of Yemen's 27.5 million citizens have been internally displaced by the conflict. Over half the population is considered food, food insecure. And you warn that famine and epidemics of, of disease may be on the near horizon. Uh, Dr. Ran, uh, I think you cited uh, the UN assistance and how critical it is. In fact, uh, a tweet came out from uh, uh, UNICEF uh, within the last 30 minutes indicating that uh, 5 million children were vaccinated against polio in their door-to-door -door campaign. So more children have actually died from preventable diseases than those killed in the violence. In addition to um, the political conversations that will need to uh, continue to move forward to bring this conflict to an end, on the humanitarian end, what more might be done uh, by USAID, by state, uh, or by our multilateral institutions to create an environment where those negotiations just, just might uh, be more effective? Uh, thank you, Senator. That's a great question. Again, um, it's the access that is the key issue. Unfortunately, in parts of this conflict, particularly in the first year or so, the access of and by the humanitarian organizations to the ground. That's what I'm talking about. So you're talking about, about HODATA and, and HODATA and in right, into the country and the distribution right. networks was right. highly politicized um, in the sense that the different combatants were politicizing aid and against international norms. Humanitarian is supposed to be apolitical, as everyone knows. So the really important part here is that all the parties to the conflict agree to a very objective, non-political distribution system. And that's why I'm less sanguine about an offensive in HODATA, because the short term would be very dramatically dissuading of the humanitarian organizations to come in in the long term, so, you're betting on a... So is enforce, is a, is a quick follow-up, is enforce or the credible threat of force necessary to change the dynamic and create access? I don't think you need credible threat because, again, it's a commercial system. So what you need is confidence that from the shippers that they can get into Hudaydah and offload their goods. But they lack confidence. So how do we change that dynamic absent 
uh, a, a more leverage created, uh, to my mind, by a credible threat of force or some other means. Perhaps you have other instruments. Any of you, you can speak to this. The situation has improved greatly right. in the right. past year compared to the first year of the conflict. So the trend is upward. So what I'm worried about is a new right. round of fighting. Okay. Yes. Yeah, I, I would just say, uh, again, um, Hodeida uh, was damaged. All the gantry cranes uh, that operate in the port were damaged in airstrikes. Uh, gantry cranes are pre-positioned in the region. If the uh, port were in the hands of the government and the coalition, there should be, as part of any initiative, as part of any U.S. Uh, support or advice and, and support of a HODATA operation, there should be a clear understanding that the urgency and the most immediate um, uh, decision after uh, success would be uh, bringing in the new gantry cranes, getting the port operating at 100% of its uh, capacity. It's not uh, right now. Uh, with uh, also the understanding that the, the coalition uh, would support the, uh, the reestablishment of the distribution networks. I agree with Daphna on that point. So if I can interject, it sounds yeah. as though putting forward a coherent plan as Absolutely. to the support that will be forthcoming uh, could well be enough uh, to, to create confidence. Uh, and, and improve the situation. Is, I, it, is, is that correct? Uh, I think that that's absolutely correct. Um, Dr. Rand? I disagree because the actual fighting could take out some of these necessary infrastructure. So you, yes. you could be set back you know, by months. It really, the actual dropping of the bombs could take out some of these cranes and some of this infrastructure to make it really impossible. Okay, if you have any supplementary comments, please, uh, uh, I, I, I will actually, I'll seek those in, in writing uh, with your yield. Um, a shout out to UNICEF. Uh, we criticize the UN, I think, uh, appropriately on a number of occasions. They're doing some good work over there. Very briefly, uh, Mr. Uh, Jocelyn, with respect to AQAP funding, um, you mentioned their fundraising apparatus. You cite uh, their fundraising from Gulf countries. Could you speak uh, fairly quickly uh, to the source of that funding, private versus governmental? And more importantly, if you have any thoughts on specifically uh, what more uh, might be done to staunch the flow of funds uh, to AQAP? Uh, please advise. Well, AQAP is, uh, has basically evolved to sort of multiple sources of funding when they controlled much of southern Yemen from April 2015 to April 2016. They even collected upwards of one to two million dollars a day in taxes in the port of Makala. Uh, according to press reports anyway. They have uh, numerous uh, for, uh, funds, uh, sources of funds. But if you look back at the U.S. Treasury Department, they've actually targeted a network inside Yemen, a banking network, that is de facto run by AQAP, and it's tied to false charities that are taking money in from Gulf donors, and they're basically funneling this money through the banking system. I would look very carefully at those designations by the U.S. Treasury Department and actually connect the dots a little bit on what they say, because it exposes the fact that AQAP to this day has uh, sort of very significant fundraising apparatus that goes throughout the Gulf. Thank you. Um, I'm going to ask, we've got uh, uh, two left to ask questions, and I we got a vote coming up pretty quickly, so I'm going to ask if you keep your answers to the point where we can stay within the five-minute realm. And I, I appreciate the fact that I know I'm usually on the end of the line myself, so I can appreciate it. But it is incredibly interesting uh, uh, discussion, and we, hopefully there'll be some questions for the record that you'll be able to respond on. So, Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you, uh, Senator Risch. Listen, to me, uh, American policy in the Middle East is a broken record, um, and the record is entitled Military Escalation. Um, I, I have sat through this hearing over and over and over again with respect to U.S. policy in Iraq, U.S. policy in Syria, U.S. policy in 
Yemen, we are told that just a little bit more military intervention will eventually create fertile ground for peace, and every time we are essentially wrong. Uh, and so um, this is a deeply frustrating hearing to me because it sounds like we are being asked to endorse, at least from one of our witnesses, uh, a policy that we know fails. We know fails. Um, and so I wanna ask two questions. Um, the second one will be on that topic, but the first one is uh, to you, Dr. Rand, to ask you to expand on your answer to Senator Shaheen with respect to targeting. Um, so if you give the Saudis precision-guided missiles, they may, may be able to hit more accurately what they want to hit. And so the question is, what do they want to hit? There is a new report from Amnesty International um, that the Saudis just recently, within the last two months, used cluster munitions in three residential areas. We know from reporting that they have deliberately targeted bridges that were on the no hit list. Whether they deliberately targeted or not, they have continued to hit civilian targets. Um, and the only reason to give them cluster, to give them precision guided missiles is if we're confident that they're gonna hit the right stuff and not the wrong stuff. And yet we've been told for two years that they're listening, they're getting better. And we get flooded with reports month after month that they are not getting better. So just expand on your answer here because if you're gonna give them these weapons, you better be damn sure that they are gonna hit the right targets and not purposefully hit the wrong targets. Thank you, Senator. So right, what I was trying to um remind the committee was the history of this discussion and how the State Department had really made the argument um, persuasively two years ago that it was the precision of the guided munitions itself that we wanted to increase and it was in everyone's interest and comported with our values to do so and the committee listened um, in 2015 and we sent over a shipment. We did not see a, um, a diminution in the sort of civilian casualties, both the numbers but also the types of targets being hit. The two things we're looking for, and I think it's clear that it's sort of binary, you know when there's progress, this is not murky, is 100% adherence to the no-strike list that has been given to the Saudis and to other coalition members, and you can ask DOD to certify to you whether there has been adherence to this no-strike list, it's black and white, and a application of the after-action um, problems that the Saudis themselves found in their dynamic targeting. So in August of 2016, they did their own report based a lot on our diplomacy through the Joint Incidents Assessment Team, and they wrote about some of the challenges they were having in targeting. So again, this is binary. Have they applied the lessons learned to the new targeting? And I would just add that in looking over the two years and charting improvements, because that's what you're asking about, is trends over time and where we've seen them go up and down, really the only two or three month period that I saw some progress was after um, the White House in October 2016 had to raise publicly their concerns about security assistance. That deterred them. They were concerned. They heard that message. Um, although it was critical of an ally and a friend, it deterred and it, and it, and it sent some people really um, watching the practice. So, so um, Ambassador, why not make that a condition of the sale? Why not say that if you are hitting things that are on the no-strike list, we stop the, the sale? Um, they clearly have responded to pressure in the past. And second, if this escalation doesn't work, Right, your theory of the case is you gotta press military advantage to get an opening for peace. The other theory of the case is actually de-escalation can be uh, a signal that you are ready to sit down at the table. Two questions, why not make that explicit condition uh, to this sale? And second, um, if this escalation doesn't work, um, is that the end? Can we then maybe try to pursue a policy of de-escalation? Uh, I, I would say uh, two things in, in answer to your question, Senator. One, um, unfortunately, and, and not only talking about munition sales or other kinds of sales to the Saudis, the reality is that as 
we have become more concerned about Saudi behavior and, and the uh, military operations, we've actually pulled back on support. We are doing less for the Saudis, less with the Saudis today than we were at the beginning of the, of the conflict. Uh, we had General Mundy in the uh, operations center uh, working with the Saudis on a daily basis. We pulled, uh, we pulled uh, that team out. We are giving less guidance, less assistance today than we have been in the past. And I think that that's hurting them and it's hurting us. I would say that what we need to do is more engagement along the lines. The other point that I would make is that I'm not advocating an expansion of the uh, conflict. In fact, what I would say is that for the most part, uh, we should be encouraging the Saudis and the coalition to adopt a more defensive posture to ensure that the Houthis and Ali Abdullah Saleh aren't able to make uh, advances. But except for the single instance of Hodeida, and Hodeida only because I believe it can be a crucial uh, element of a humanitarian strategy, uh, I think that we should not be encouraging the Saudis to do more. Senator Markey. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Let me just follow up then in terms of uh, a Saudi offensive on the on uh, Hudeya, uh, which would bring a high risk of more civilian casualties and long-term closure of the port through which most of the humanitarian assistance flows. If the Saudis choose that course and cut off humanitarian assistance to areas at high risk of famine, what effect would that have on attitudes of the civilian population towards the parties to the war, towards the Saudis, towards the United States. Uh, Dr. Rand. Thank you, Senator. Um, this, is, this is exactly the point. I do not think, so in the short term, the fighting itself would have deleterious effects on the access. So that would be negative in the short term. Even in the long term, we would be banking on the Saudis being able to reestablish port access and distribution networks in a better way than the current system, which is not 100%, but is working. working. Um, it's not ideal, but it's working. So we're banking on a better system of distribution. And I am not optimistic that that will necessarily happen in enough time to address the concerns of the people of Yemen. And I think that will add to the grievance directly against the United States because we will be, you know, it won't even be the coalition anymore. It will be Yemeni saying that the Americans have, a, you know, have helped a siege, et cetera. Okay, thank you. Um, I'd like to get each of your perspectives on um, core Al-Qaeda's apparent direct operational control of both Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula in Yemen and Al-Nusra in Syria. How closely do these two groups coordinate? What is Al-Qaeda's current presence in Iraq? Well, yes, this is a great question right up my alley. So uh, basically uh, about 18 months ago, Al-Qaeda said that they shifted the weight of their organization to Yemen and Syria. This was something the leadership did. Over time, they were actually reflecting past decisions uh, because they saw those were the two places where leadership was most necessary. There is coordination across the network. There's Al-Qaeda senior leadership in Yemen and in Syria today. Earlier, Senator Sh uh, Shaheen asked about uh, the bomb maker of Syria. He actually uh, trained deputies in highly uh, sophisticated explosives, some of whom actually went to Syria and were integrated into something called Al-Qaeda's Khorasan Group, which was then bombed in September 2014 by the Obama administration, rightfully so. Uh, they were devising very sophisticated means to attack airliners and other things. I'm very worried that those, those activities are still going on and are actually across uh, both countries. The bottom line here is, just to sum this up very quickly, Al-Qaeda's core uh, was never defeated. It was never decimated. They suffered dozens of uh, leadership losses for sure, but they had thought that through. And they knew that they were going to suffer those losses. And we're still killing guys to this day 
who first joined the jihad in 1979 and 1980. I was three years old at the time. So you're saying, you're saying close coordination exists? I think, I think, I can't tell you on a day-to-day -day basis how much coordination is going on, but I see a lot of evidence of coordination across the whole thing. They have a newsletter, for example, AQAP puts out called Al-Mazra. It's in Arabic, it goes out every week. They have a detailed commentary on what's going on in Syria and across the Al-Qaeda network, and it actually reflects a very detailed coordination of sort of their analysis of the, of the picture of the world. Okay, and Ambassador Firestein, uh, last month Secretary Tillerson met with UN Special Envoy for Yemen and his counterparts from Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Oman, and the UK. The State Department readout of the meeting referenced the need for unfettered delivery of humanitarian assistance, but omitted any mention of the need for a ceasefire as had been included in readouts of similar meetings in the past. What signal from your perspective does that send about the U.S. interest in the end of the war? Well, I think that uh, uh, the, uh, the statement also referred to the need for uh, resumption of the political negotiations and, uh, again, UN Security Council Resolution 2216, which lays out the political strategy uh, to achieve uh, uh, progress in a resolution. So uh, I, I don't think that there was any change. Uh, as you know, uh, Secretary Kerry, at the end of the Obama administration, tried uh, on several occasions to try to get a ceasefire going. Uh, didn't really work, and and so uh, I think that realistically, the immediate the immediate issues, the immediate challenges should be humanitarian uh, uh, relief uh, and uh, resumption of the political negotiations. But do you do you think the omission of the phrase ceasefire uh, has any meaning at all? No, Is there sir. a change in the strategy that? No, uh, sir, if I, if I may, I, I don't think so, because I, I think that within the context of a political negotiation, you can have a discussion about uh, ceasefires, as we saw last year. Uh, so what, last what, in your opinion, what is the chief sticking point? Uh, what is the chief sticking point to a negotiated settlement? Well, I, uh, from my perspective, I think the chief sticking point at this point is that neither the Houthis nor Ali Abdullah Saleh see an interest in, in uh, bringing it to a resolution. Uh, and then there are additional complexities that even if there's a political resolution, you're going to have instability in Yemen for many years to come. Okay, thank, you. Thank, you. thank you. Senator Booker. So um, clearly, we see what the Trump administration is moving to do right now. Uh, the headlines in the Washington Post are that they are going to resume arms sales. I, I'm really uh, concerned in the, in the way that uh, Senator Murphy was about the futility of the efforts that were continuing and the gravity of the, the, the sheer scale of the human crisis that's going on in the country right now. Three million internally displaced people, millions and millions of people on the brink of famine uh, and the extreme nature of that. It seems two different perspectives on whether we should be engaging and assisting in this Hodeida uh, effort and what consequences that will have. What concerns me is we've already uh, pulled out, as you were saying, from the joint combined planning cell. We're not even in there engaged anymore. And I've heard, I'm sure you have, unofficial reports that, that we are, were sort of offended by the way they were going about doing a lot of their targeting, at least our, our, our high-level military personnel. And so I actually agree with the, the, the Al-Qaeda threat, and, and clearly we have a number of missions there. I hope that top amongst them is humanitarian, helping our allies Saudi Arabia protect its actual border from incursions, uh, bringing an end to this conflict, defeating uh, Al-Qaeda and, and, and that. But I just am not convinced that more uh, um, uh, uh, empowering Saudi Arabia to conduct in the way they are is not going to hurt us 
on 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 um, all of those uh, on many of those critical uh, uh, goals that the United States has. And so I guess um, uh, the first question, uh, real quick, uh, to to Dr. Rand. Um, there is no, we have no assurances, nothing has changed in our ability um, to curtail the Saudi um, uh, indiscriminate uh, uh, um, casualties that are being created. We have no, nothing has changed uh, between the end of the Obama administration that was not, that has suspended the sale of those arms and, and the Trump administration and their activities now. Has anything changed? I think there's an anecdotal answer to your question, Senator, and then a systemic one. And then for the systemic answer, I'd urge you to ask DOD colleagues to really assess, you know, militarily. Anecdotally, there was a large civilian casualty attack in October at the funeral hall, and we have not seen a big attack of that sort with hundreds or so civilians. So in that sense, there has been an improvement in that there has not been a large scale. Right. We have seen a few much smaller um, strikes where civilians have been killed. So I cannot tell you for sure that the problem has been addressed. And again, I think it's a military judgment question that's best suited to Secretary Mattis or Chairman Votel to go in and really assess whether the practices, this is scientific essentially targeting, and our, and our CENTCOM folks are really, really good at it, and so they can assess. Right, two more points. Ambassador, you're really insightful uh, written testimony. I really appreciate that. And, and I seem to, from everybody, I, I think I seem to conclude that nobody believes this is gonna be a military victory, it's gonna be a negotiated victory, and it's going to be a unity government of some sort. Is that, is that correct, sir? Uh, yes, sir. And, and, and so, the, the, the military advantage of more battle victories, whether it's in Hodeida or not, is, is, it's not necessarily uh, related to the eventual uh, negotiated outcome. No, I think it's, it's uh, fundamentally, it's a way of applying leverage to try to get people to the negotiating table. Okay, and then the last question, uh, mercifully, uh, for my much senior Senator Rich, is just simply, um, the internal politics in Saudi Arabia are really fascinating to me, uh, having visited there and um, sort of uh, MBS uh, and, and his sort of ambitions. Uh, it, can you give me any insight? Am I sort of far-fetched in my belief that um, some of this has to do with the uh, sort of uh, uh, ambitions for power and how this is being conducted and the, the thrust of MBS? Is there anything there, to, to pull, any threads there to pull on or Ambassador? I, I would have to say, um, I think that many people speculate that, uh, in fact, uh, this was an initiative that Mohammed bin Salman uh, supported uh, in, in the beginning. Uh, I had the uh, opportunity to visit uh, Saudi Arabia with Secretary Kerry uh, just about a year ago, uh, and we met with both uh, uh, Mohammed bin Nayef and Mohammed bin Salman, uh, and I would have to say that at least um, at, that, at that point, uh, the two uh, the two leaders were very much in lockstep in terms of their perspective and in terms of the way that they wanted to go forward. So I'm not sure that I would put too much uh, weight on this idea that it's a reflection of internal differences within Saudi Arabia. And I suspect all three of you would be available to a uh, junior United States Senator to want to continue the conversation at some later date. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Thank you, Senator Berger. Uh, thank you to our witnesses for attending today. There may be some additional questions for the record from members. We're going to keep the record open until close of business on Monday. If you'd respond promptly, we would greatly appreciate it. But we sincerely appreciate your input. I think uh, what the bottom line here is we've all got the same objective. We may have some differences as to how we're going to get there, uh, and it's a, uh, it's a heavy lift, to say the least. Thanks again. Uh, this means adjourned.